Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. We are very excited to introduce our guest today. It is the great Matt Stoller. He's been on the podcast twice before, but we just can't resist getting his takes. Originally, we booked him to just talk about what do you expect from a Joe Biden America? And it's funny because it just quickly went off the rails in several different directions. Matt opens with a monologue, one of the best monologues I have yet ever heard about how power and governance actually works in Washington, what progressives in particular miss about that. Then we talk a little bit about tech, and we get into a fascinating debate, discussion, whatever the hell you want to call it, about reparations and the nature of universal programs and how to solve wealth gaps in America today. So in effect, it was the most Matt Stoller of the Stoller episodes that we've done so far, and I really love this discussion. Yeah, the most important part was his quick defense of the Miami Dolphins as a good football team. I think that is the (laughs) second time there's been a sports reference on the podcast, so we are working on increasing (laughs) the frequency of those sorts of things. You're going to see in 2021 a new, improved, much more like down-to-earth realignment, obviously. We'll work in a third one by January. So... As you guys know, we are always getting and requesting awesome questions from everyone. So if you want to ask us a cue, send an email to realignmentpod at gmail.com or, and we definitely prefer this, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and leave us a written review with the question inside. If you send us an email, send us a screenshot of your five-star review. But for today's question, this is from S. Moore by way of email. My question is, What are the chances of an initiative like Brett Weinstein's Unity 2020 or the People's Party actually getting a platform in the next election cycle? I'm doubtful. Can you see a way of changing either party? So I just want to make a quick editorial note. He's referencing Brett Weinstein, who we had on this podcast in September's idea of creating a movement to draw outsider candidates into the election to challenge the establishment of both parties. Brett had said that if it didn't work in 2020, he would try in 2024. So we're seeing whether Sagar and I think that will be a real thing. What do you think, Sagar? Oh, I'm smiling over here. I wish you guys could see it. We've done how many times we have to do third party, but that's fine. We could do it again. Uh, look, it's not going to happen. And I, 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 I know that this is very troubling to many of you, but the only effective thing that a third party can do is become salient enough that its ideas end up taking over another party. So if you want to look back at Ross Perot and his ideas on trade and nationalism and all of that, ended up, 20 years later, becoming a major part of the Republican Party under Donald Trump and bringing in many of these disaffected voters. If you want to think about the Bernie Sanders 2016 uh, primary challenge, which, look, you, you could look at it as an actual Democratic Party effort. I think it's more analogous to a third party effort. That created and spawned a huge progressive element within the Democratic Party. It's always easier and better in order to work within party infrastructures, in order to take over existing ones, especially brittle ones, like the DNC and the RNC, than it is to try from the outside. It is the system that we have here in America, but also what I'm talking about here is the most effective way in order to enact the change that you actually want to see when you talk about third-party initiatives. And this is the key thing to your Bernie example, Sagar, Everyone should imagine, everyone who's cynical about the ability to change things within the system can imagine 
How effective would Bernie have been if he'd ran under the Green Party or under the Working Families Party? Exactly. Would not have been a thing at all. People could be pessimistic about ways that Bernie changed the Democratic Party, but guess what? The reason why Joe Biden is seriously contemplating a humongous student loan forgiveness program as his first act, the reason why the $15 minimum wage, which used to be this crazy out-of-hand thing in 2014-2015 are now conventional wisdom, is because of Bernie's run within the system. Because what Bernie did is that Bernie proved and activated voters who actually respond to the Democratic establishment. So that's sort of the key thing here, too. You can be completely dissatisfied with the Democratic or Republican parties. What you shouldn't do is allow that dissatisfaction to convince you that the way you change things is by leaving the tent, by not operating within the system, because all you end up actually doing is throwing a bunch of votes to someone who isn't going to win in the first place, and you actually end up deactivating voters who should sort of want to engage with you. We run into this debate all the time when we run into people, usually on the left, because obviously the right has had more success of an insurgent campaign of Donald Trump who say, but Marshall and Sager, the Democratic establishment is corrupt and actually you can't win votes. And actually Barack Obama made these phone calls. What you should realize what you're doing is you're actually galaxy branding yourself and your cohort into believing that you shouldn't even participate in the process, which by definition means that the establishment would win. So that's sort of the key thing you should take away in your thinking about this. Yep. That I couldn't think of a better way to say it. As always, a special thank you to the Lincoln Network for sponsoring our work here on this podcast. And with that, let's dive in. Matt Stoller, welcome back to The Realignment. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to see you, Matt. So we spoke with you in August of 2019, mid-pandemic, which I guess we still are mid-pandemic back in March, but we're now post-2020 election. So the place that we've been starting with everyone is, what are your thoughts, just broadly speaking? It's over and a new thing's beginning. Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden's going to fix everything. So I'm actually quitting (laughs) politics because there's no point anymore. It's all solved. And the pandemic will soon be done because, you know, when Biden gets inaugurated, that's the cure. So one of the things I saw you uh, saying, Matt, and this is something that you have been you know, beating the drum on now for a long time, is that neither party is particularly interested in governance um, and that in the progressive left in particular. So just can you tease that out? What exactly governance means? It's a critique that you make all the time. And I think it's one which is very profound, but which might not make sense to our average listener. So what do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. Do you mind if I answer entirely with sarcasm? In- 100%. You I mean, started I with everybody sarcasm, would love so you're going you're gonna to yeah. continue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so governance, yeah, governing, I talk a lot about wielding power and the importance of governing. And it's, it's really what's missing, I think, in both political parties. The reason I focus more on the Democratic side and the progressive side is because I am a progressive Democrat, but also I think they, they understand less about it than the Republicans. So the Republicans mm-hmm. are sort of more self-aware about their problems, whereas the Democrats, and particularly the progressives, actually don't even know they have a problem. But, so the idea of governing and wielding power is that you know, it's a question of who in society has the legitimate capacity to shape how our 
uh, social institutions function, right? Who gets to wield power? Who gets to make the rules? And, you know, this came from my writing my book, Goliath, uh, which, was, which was on the problem of monopoly power. And particularly, I was interested in why the Democrats sort of screwed up the financial crisis so badly. So I went back and looked into the history of the Democratic Party. And what I noticed as I was reading a bunch of hearings from, you know, the 1890s all the way up to the, the 1990s is that there was this, there was this real shift that took place sort of in, the, in the 1970s or so when the Democrats had been a group that was like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build, build bridges here. We're going to hire people to do this. We're going to like put rules in this market and that way. The bankers shouldn't be doing that. They should be doing this other thing. If they don't, we're going to build our own government bank to do it. Like they did stuff. And they were like, mm -hmm. we're the ones who are going to do things. Uh, we're going to negotiate to put electricity here. And sometimes they would say, you know, if a group of farmers want electricity, they have to band together and will, the government will lend them the money and give them the expertise. And then they can put a little electric co-op, which is what we have all over Texas and a bunch of places in the country. But they did stuff, right? And to contrast that today, like maybe, maybe not today, but like five or six years ago, you know, when everybody wanted Google Fiber, right? And it was like all of these cities were competing to get Google Fiber so that they could get high-speed broadband, high broadband. And it's like, if this were the New Deal, the people that were doing Google Fiber were sitting, you know, they're sitting at Google making these decisions about which city gets internet. They would be sitting in some executive branch agency making that choice, right? So the legitimacy mm -hmm. of who wields power, who makes stuff flow, who makes things move, that is moved from public institutions to private ones, and particularly into the hands of sort of financiers and monopolists. And in order to, that's governing, right? And so if you look at who's governing, you know, it's, it's Mark Zuckerberg. He's the guy who's making choices about how, about the rules by which we discuss things. And it's, you know, a lot, it's the Chinese government. They're the ones that make the rules around what gets made and what gets shipped and whatnot. So increasingly, mm -hmm. these, these rules are not being made in, um, in our public institutions. Now, in order to govern, right, governing is hard. Wielding power is hard. It's also really fun, but it means you have to know how the systems that you're trying to affect actually work. Like you have to know when, when you're trying to deal with healthcare, you know, you have to know or care, care or know people who know how a pill, you know, you take a bunch of powder, where that powder is made, how that powder gets put into a pill, the different rules on, you know, where that, pill, how that pill is, labor, is labeled and regulated. Is there a court decision on all of it? And, you know, you have to know and understand the flow of stuff. You have to understand the flow of money. And then you have to make decisions that are not like grandly ideological, but are just practical about, you know, this pill is made here, it needs to be made there, right? Which mm -hmm. is like made in, you know, we, ultimately China makes our medicine and that's a big problem. It's not just pills, but everything. And that's what I mean by governance. So I'll give you kind of one example of where the progressives and Democrats have done a great job and one example of where they have done, uh, where they don't even know they're not governing. Okay, so the great job is the House Antitrust Subcommittee, right? Which, which is where David Cicilline and Pramila Jayapal, along with some Republicans, um, Doug Collins at first, then he got off the committee to run for Senate and, uh, and then Ken Buck largely. Jim Jordan was a clown, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, but they got together and they did a 16-month investigation where they read um, a million documents 
of how Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple actually work as businesses. They also did interviews with hundreds of their competitors. They really learned the market systems and market structures. And then they came out with a four or 500 page report being like, here's how the whole markets, here's how the markets work. Here's how cloud computing works. And just explaining it, not just not being pejorative, but just being like, here's how Amazon sells books. This is how the mm-hmm. books flow. You know, this is how cloud computing works. This is how the search engine works. And, and, and then they said, here are the bottlenecks. Here are the, the cultural and social problems. Here are the concentrations of power. Here's what's working well, here's what's not. And so when they did, um, when they asked, you know, the, the CEOs who came before their committee questions, these were really good questions. They were like, you wrote this in your email before buying Instagram. Like, how do you justify it? And they kind of put them on the spot. But right. it's because they knew more about these companies at this point than the CEOs did. They had done the work to understand these markets and that's governing, really understanding mm-hmm. markets and then understanding what you're trying to do to change those markets in, in concert with social goals, right? Mark Zuckerberg has social goals. At one point he said, you know, I tasked the team to figure out if you know, the average American only has three good friends. And I tasked the team at Facebook to see if we could get them to have another good friend. Cause I think that's a good thing. And it was just like, that's fucking weird, but also it's governor. He just was like, I'm going to figure out if I can get everyone another good friend. I'm kind of like, leave me right. alone. Um, but that, that is because he knows and understands that system and he has the resources and ability to get people to do things with that system. And he tries and he fails at a lot of things, but he also succeeds at a bunch of things. And that's what I saw with the House Antitrust Subcommittee hearings. They really tried, but because they did the work to understand the problem. You didn't really see that with Boeing. You haven't really seen that. You see a little bit with, with pharmaceuticals, but you don't really see that with most of areas of our, of our political economy. So here's the bad example. Okay, you can look at Green New Deal. The Green New Deal, they don't, there's not really any details there. So it's not really a serious endeavor. And I think the same thing in many ways is true. Um, it's not entirely true because it gets a little complicated, but Medicare for All is a good example of, you know, what I, I distinguish between um, lifestyle brand progressivism and actual, you know, ideological attempts mm-hmm. to reorient society. I would say in a progressive way, but, you know, we could quibble on, on terminology. But it's like, okay, so I do a lot on antitrust and we've made a lot of progress on antitrust in the last four years when Trump has been in office and I'm progressive and it's largely, I think we're playing on a progressive playing field. They brought an antitrust suit against Google. I mean, I think it's hard to argue that the antitrust movement hasn't made an anti-monopoly. We made a lot of, of progress. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter. I mean, we would make more progress if the Democrat were in office, but we made progress either way because the ideas are good and it's a real political agenda. Um, but I think if you look at Medicare for all, right, is it a real political agenda? Well, we had the largest pandemic we've ever faced. The healthcare system was reorganized with the CARES Act, because people don't look at it that way, but it was billions of dollars for hospitals and pharmaceutical companies and, you know, to reorient our supply chains. You know, you had, um, you had this massive opportunity. You also had Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, very popular, very important, could raise a lot of money. They were right there in the, they could, they could have been involved in negotiations. Uh, Marco Rubio moved his agenda on small business, definitely done a lot less work on that than Medicare for all people. But during the CARES Act, you know, the, the PPP program was a very serious attempt to restructure mm-hmm. small business. Um, but Medicare for all, they made zero policy impact, despite having, you know, powerful, important senators, a presidential campaign, a pandemic, 
a financial crisis, a multi-trillion dollar bailout. They made no progress at all. And that is because they weren't governing. They weren't focused on uh, the underlying details of how we deliver healthcare. It was the slogan saying we need maybe kind of more people to be included into whatever this system is. Even the bill that people point to as Medicare for all isn't actually Medicare. Um, there wasn't actually any distinction between Medicare for all system where you have 20% of GDP going for Medicare and a Medicare for all system where you have 10% of GDP going for, for healthcare. And that, right. those are very different systems. And so the failure to think through and build a real political program where you actually understand, you know, how a pill, you know, how the powder becomes a pill and where it's all made and where the market power is. And the same thing is true with hospitals and PBMs and, and, you know, air ambulances and every part of the healthcare system. And there are people that know a lot about this, but the failure to sort of take all of that and package it into a real political program is why there was zero progress made despite kind of optimal conditions to make you know, some progress. And, mm -hmm. and I think Trump actually did a bunch of stuff on hospital pricing and PBMs. He made more progress on, on reducing healthcare costs than I think the Medicare for all people did because, you know, he's just like, he has power and he sort of wields it sometimes and kind of randomly. But the, more importantly, I think the Medicare for all sort of movement isn't a coherent political program. And I think the reason I, and I'll finish this, it's like the reason I make this critique for progressives a lot is because they don't actually know that they have a problem. Like they don't actually understand that, you know, they're not being sabotaged, right? Like obviously they are like political opponents don't like them. And you know, that's what politics yeah. is. You try to prevent your opponent from doing the things that they want to do. But you know, that's going to mean that sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Well, what I've seen with progressives is for 15 years, literally lost on every single thing anytime we've tried it. Or, you know, and there are all these reasons why people can give excuses, but at some point you have to just come to grips with the fact that there's something really rotten and, and uh, problematic about how progressives organize uh, their politics. And I want to fix that. I think it's something that we can fix. I think progressives, you know, we have... Um, you know, we have shared agenda items that are broadly popular and important. And I think that if we can kind of get ourselves towards thinking clearly about wielding power and governing to do what Cicilline and Pramila did, which, and they're both progressives, but to actually do that, but in other areas of the political economy, I think that will actually really rejuvenate progressive politics in, a, in, in an important way. But right now, mm -hmm. it's not really politics. It's just kind of like a lifestyle brand. Yeah. So you sort of answered this, but I want to push on it because we have enough left listeners here that I can channel this argument. Matt, the reason why now I'm putting on progressive listener hat, the reason why we don't have Medicare for all is the structural Democratic Party in D.C. at everything from the sort of how do campaigns turn out to the DNC to the power of Nancy Pelosi is fundamentally opposed to those sort of movements. So they would say that when you're talking about anti-monopoly or antitrust, that is just not a policy area that this sort of DC center left establishment is so turned against as, in oppo as opposed to, for example, Medicare for all. So they would probably argue that the hospital industry and the established incumbents in the space yep. are much more bigger donors to the Democratic Party institutionally. They would probably argue that in many ways there's less of a contradiction between Nancy Pelosi's agenda and antitrust as there is of Medicare for all. So can you just 
just respond to that broader point. They probably throw in some reference to superdelegates and 2016 and everything <laughs> like that, right? So this is where this is where I'm becoming a parody of them. But could you respond to their structural argument? Well, look, I mean, in one sense, it's sort of irrelevant, right? I mean, if if your strategy is we can never achieve our goals because the structural impediments are too high, then find different goals. Like, that's not yeah. politics. Like, if you're like, oh, we can never do it because the establishment is so powerful and will always defeat us. Okay. I mean, I'm never going to, like, I'm never going to be 25 again. Like, <laughs> I'm never going to play pro football. Um, I'm yeah, like, okay. You know, I mean, it, it, I, I don't believe that because I think, I think that there are, are every other country in the world is somehow able to put together a, a healthcare system that is, that is cheaper and better. Not every other, most, most countries. Mm. And I am just, I, I believe there's something intrinsic in, and I don't actually think the democratic establishment is opposed to, um, to a lot of our, our healthcare goals. I, I think that, that the, the center and the fighting the left is in many ways, it's not real. It's kabuki, but um, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to arrange a uni- an inefficient, cheap universal healthcare system. And I don't know why we have fixated on one particular bureaucratic arrangement. That's not about principle. That is about like fixating on a particular slogan. And I, I think if you look at things like surprise billing or um, which everybody hates or like certain types of anti-competitive practices that pharmaceutical companies engage in, like there's a lot of things that you can attack that don't really fit into the Medicare for all frame because they're sort of provider side, but are broadly popular. Because what America, the Americans don't care if they get Medicare for all or not. What they want is a cheap, universal and efficient system where they can see the doctor if they need to, right? right? And like, they don't really care about the bureaucratic details. And I like the obsession with bureaucratic details is weird. And I think a lot of like, what I often get when I talk about this is the left thinks, like people on the left, and I'm not saying all people on the left think this, but a lot of people are like, well, that's what I mean by Medicare for all. Whatever it is, if you're like, well, we need to crack down on hospital monopolies. They're like, well, that's what I mean by Medicare for all. Or you're like, well, it needs to be simple. It's like, well, that means what I mean by Medicare for all. It's like, well, no, it's not. Medicare for all means everybody gets Medicare. And that, that's what it means. I mean, if you just look at the wording. So mm-hmm. if, if, and like the political program shows that that is in fact what it means, right? It means this, we are gonna pass this one particular bill that Bernie wants, because if it meant more broadly these other things, then what we would see is people in Medicare for all, like world would be fighting against hospital murders, or they would be fighting against, you know, various anti-competitive practices, or they'd be, you know, and what you really see is like the, the movement, the sort of quote, unquote movement is very, they just lose interest once you start getting into any of the details here. And that yes. thing is like, that's not governing, that's not real politics, that's not a real political agenda. And I believe, and this is my bias, but I believe that that lack of seriousness, that lack of a real agenda is why people don't trust progressives, right? And, and I think like people are like, oh, the progressive agenda is popular. And it's like, yes, it is popular if we meant it. If we meant it and people believed that we were gonna do it and that we knew how to do it, that, that we, would, we would win a lot. But like, cause mm-hmm. if we did, you know, that was the, the Democratic party up until really the 1970s. But I don't think that we're serious about it. And I, I'll just kind of finish with like, I always, the other thing I'm known for is sort of saying, you know, Obama was a bad president. And I think that that's, you know, I harp on this because progressives still refuse to accept the fact that they were the ones that put Obama in office. 
Like uh-huh. they supported him over Clinton. Progressives were his base. It was, it was pro- white progressives and black voters were Obama's base. They loved him. In many ways, they still love him. And I'm sorry, but if that's your guy, then that's your policy. So you can't distinct, unless you say, which is what Trump did. Trump was like, a, Bush is a disaster, right? But unless <laughs> you say, no, that's not our policy. That guy was a disaster. It's your policy. And you can't be like, oh, he didn't mean, he meant well. He's a good guy, but like, you know, it didn't work out. Like you have to be like, no, that's not us. But right now, progressives, they don't know that they are associated with like Obama's policies. They just refuse to accept it. But it's like the progressive caucus was, which is the main kind of institutional bulwark of, of progressives. Like they voted for the bailouts in 2008 at a higher rate than any other caucus. And it's just like progressives do not understand that their policymakers and their movement is far more supportive of corporate power than they realize or want to admit. And it's like, right. it's fine to just acknowledge it and be like, all right, we're going to fix this. We're going to address it. But it's like, you got to admit there's a problem. Like, and that's, that's my issue. It's like, let's admit there's a problem and let's have the courage to learn. That's all I'm saying. And we're recording this on the 17th. So before we sort of move on, I want to ask your thoughts on the hear- tech hearings um, with the Senate. So Mark Zuckerberg, um, Jack Dorsey of Twitter are sort of zooming in. Were you watching the hearings? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, you know, okay, a number of thoughts. So one- it's, Just one or two. One or two. It, it's really obvious that like most of the Senate Judiciary Committee haven't done any work because it's an annoying hearing. And the House Antitrust Subcommittee was, you know, they did a ton of work. And so they sounded good because they knew what they were talking about. A lot of these people that don't know what they're talking about. They're just railing at Jack Dorsey or whatever. And it's annoying. Mm. Um, Hawley always sounds good because he does work, right? Hawley actually had a really good set of questions, which is, are you, Facebook, are you collaborating? Is your content moderation team collaborating with the content moderation team of Twitter and Google? Because if they are, that is a potential cartel enforcement issue, mm-hmm. right? That, that is a variant of price fixing, except it's kind of content fixing. And that's really smart. And, and you know, I, so I was like impressed with that, but that's because he actually did some work and research on this. The other person I think is Klobuchar, who, who had some, I was in the middle of watching her when um, we started this podcast, but she had some good questions where she just was asking him basic stuff, Zuckerberg, about... Uh, how they killed rivals. And it's just basic good trial lawyer work. So I, I, was, I was pleased with those two um, senators, but I really wish that some of the other committees would start to mimic what the House Antitrust Subcommittee did, and sometimes what the Oversight Committee did, and really just kind of like do some work to understand these systems, and then yeah. we'll know what to do with them because they are complicated systems. You have to learn them. You have to learn them. You know, this is an interesting point I want to get with you, Matt, where you were just talking about content moderation and about a cartel. Here's something that I'm fascinated by, given the fact that you, I think, have one of the top free substacks in the country. Um, there's a big discussion right now around substack. Is it a publisher or a platform? Um, the CJR, the Columbia Journalism Review, you know, basically launching the first salvo against them. I think setting up the ground for trying to deplatform people on Substack. As somebody who's talked a lot about this in the context of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, how do you think about Substack and content moderation and where that debate is heading? 
Yeah, I mean, it's just like the same discussion we had in the mid 2000s about bloggers. Mm-hmm. Like, wait, you mean people can say anything they want online? <laughs> That's crazy. And w- they could be paid by anyone. You know, we need a blogger ethics panel, like after they lied us into war. I mean, it's just dumb and annoying. Um, yeah. Substack is just an email list with a billing tool. It's neutral. I mean, that's the other thing. It's like, they're not, um, Substack's just a neutral platform for um, people to send out, uh, for people to send out email. And, and I think that the, what distinguishes Substack from Facebook or Google is that the people who use, who get Substack, like the subscribers actually pay for it directly. So Substack doesn't make money manipulating people. They make money when people buy the content from Substack writers and their fee structure is very clear. It's a 7% of whatever your subscribers pay. So there's just no conflicts of interest in that business model. It's more like a, it's kind of like a credit card network more than it is anything else. There's no discrimination in the pricing. Um, there's no payola or kickbacks or anything like that. So I look at Substack. I'm just like, this is a neutral platform to get out to people that want to read your stuff that helps you facilitate subscriptions and payments. And that's, it's, uh, it's kind of no more than that. I mean, I think you can get into like a lot of discussions about, you know, the structure of the news media, but it's like the Substack debate is in many ways, like a Rorschach test for like, whatever it is, you know, you think the like larger debate over big media is. Yeah. So the problem here, and I don't disagree, and I like your Rosar tech point, but there are a lot of people who don't want platforms to be neutral. So there are a lot of people who, for, I think, just if they're, they're bad faith and good faith reasons to hold this position, but there are people who hold the position that actually a web hosting service shouldn't host Stormfront or shouldn't host the QAnon meetup. So we're sort of at this space where I don't think the objection would be can insert odious person host a blog it's should a platform like substack that also hosts content for free for example your thing is effectively subsidized by substack because you're distributing but you're not charging as far as i know how do we what would you say to people who don't want internet platforms to be neutral i i think as long as there's competition in the market um for these communication networks or or um, publishing platforms as long as there, you know, no one has too much power, it's, you know, and there really aren't conflicts of interest in the business model, we're, we're okay. Um, the Substack doesn't really have any power and there are no conflicts of interest in the business model. So we're fine. If, yeah. you know, the issue with Facebook and Google is they're really powerful. There are very, they're very significant conflicts in the business model and um, there's no competition. So that's the issue. Could you expand on the conflicts of, of the conflict? Because we're getting sort of wonky in a good way. What yeah. are the conflicts in the Facebook Twitter business model? Well, so Facebook, if you use Facebook, they want to show you ads, right? You use Facebook to connect to your friends and family. And then, but instead of connecting to, you know, content that, you know, you're more interested in, they're going to show you content that will addict you. So keep you using, and they're going to show you content that they're paid to show you. And that's a conflict, right? They are paid not to deliver what, you know, you might find useful about the service, but to deliver what um, information that they find useful to give to you. Um, so it's a communication plus sort of like if, if the AT&T 
you didn't pay for AT&T's phone service, but you know, if you called a restaurant in your neighborhood and AT&T was just like, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna um, connect you to whichever restaurant has paid us the most for a mm -hmm. person like you calling a restaurant, right? That, that's a conflict of interest, right? They are not, you are not paying them for the communication service. They are using you as, a, as an object to, to, they're manipulating you to make money. So it's a deceptive business model, right? So that's this, the same thing with Facebook. It's like, you're not actually paying with money, you're paying with attention and data, and most importantly, you know, your time. And so that's like, that's where the conflict comes in. And, you know, Amazon is a slightly different problem and Google is a somewhat similar problem. But Substack, it's like, you know what you're getting, you're paying for it directly, no one's fooled. It's just a straight up, you know, transaction and Substack is facilitating that transaction. So there we go. Well, what I like about what you said, and I think all of us have made this point at some point, which is like, look, content moderation doesn't become such a problem as long as there's like, there's like competition in the marketplace. It's like whenever you're the whole only game in town or you have a disproportionate impact, then the minutia of your content moderation actually becomes pretty important. Right. And I think I mean, that that's an editor. Yeah. An editor you're just an editor until you're controlling everything and then you're a censor. Right. That's a good exactly. phrasing. Stalin was just an editor, <laughs> right? It's just that he edited everything. That's all censorship. <laughs> um, I mean, he did other things, but you know. Yes. You know what I mean? Anyway, but I think it's important to point out that Glenn Greenwald is bad and shouldn't be on Substack for reasons. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> What, you know, but I, I love the tech, this tech stuff, Matt, but I also, there's something I really am curious to get your thoughts on. There are a lot of hot takes flying around. Um, the GOP is now apparently the party of the working class. The Democrats are the party of the rich. And then depending on which exit, uh, which carefully curated exit data that you look at, you can basically draw whatever conclusions you want. I also know that you're from Florida. How are you digesting the election results, basically the ascendant? I mean, at, at this point, a couple of things are clear. Trump won more Latino voters than he did last time around, um, and especially in Miami-Dade County and the Rio Grande Valley, as well as in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and that upper-middle-class whites are largely the people who delivered Joe Biden the presidency. How do you think that portends both for your politics, uh, maybe Miami explain a little bit about what the hell happened down there, and just in general, um, your reaction to the the whole like demographics debate and the aftermath of the election? Well, just to you know, I think it's important to distinguish say, it, it, the change, the net change of mm -hmm. upper class white voters is what delivered Biden. Correct, Biden. but like it was still black voters and Latino voters, even though a bunch of them fled to Trump, it's like what, what the margin, the changing margin from 2016 to 2020 was upper class white voters to Biden. But like, it's not like Biden didn't get any black votes or Latino. Correct. Votes. Absolutely correct. He won the vast majority of the black vote, vast majority of the, I wouldn't say vast majority of the Latino vote. Tried to like sneak two, that one two past, kidding. <laughs> or whatever. The net change in the suburban college educated white votes is what delivered Joe Biden. The I can't talk to you anymore. You're racist. <laughs> I'm being okay, censored on my own podcast. Yeah, being censored. <laughs> I'm not going to acknowledge you, legit, the legitimacy of you. I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> uh, 
Miami's playing. Well, first of all, the Dolphins are good, which is just like, I, I don't okay. understand. I've been a that's Dolphin. A take. It's yeah. just like, that's just, <laughs> it's just weird. That's how you know 2020 is weird. The Dolphins uh-huh. are good. Um, yeah. Well, you know my thing with Florida. I was like, before the election, I was like, the Democrats should just cut a deal with Trump and say, you have to leave the White House, but you get to be king of Florida. <laughs> right? And I, I, I thought that it would actually be funny if, if Trump just stole the Florida vote, even if he won it, just somehow find a way to steal it. Because I think that's very on brand. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, I just feel like Florida's election should be stolen every time. Um, no, I mean, like South Florida, you know, it, it, Florida is a weird state. It's got, it's very, diff- South Florida is different than Central Florida, Northern Florida and whatnot. So, but um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the Cuban Americans are not, you know, they're not like other like sort of Latino groups. They're much more conservative. And I think like Trump was very appealing to them. And then I think, you know, Latinos in general are, um, you know, they're, they're in the process of sort of becoming, you know, the, the way that people said about how the Irish became white, you know, it's happened, mm. right? As soon as, you know, like as soon as the, the, the politics make it so that like an ethnic group becomes the swing block, everyone's like, oh, oh you're, now you're, you're not white, come on over to us, right? That's like how American history, you could look, that's one way to look at American history. So I never thought the demographics or destiny thing was, was anything but short term. And I never mm. bought into these arguments, oh, America's gonna become majority minority. It's like, that's, I mean, it's kind of by definition, like not a thing. By the standards right. of the 1840s, we've been majority minority yeah, for a exactly. while, right? <laughs> right? But also like, if you're, it's, you're always majority majority, that's what majority means. Correct. Like you can't be, right. I mean, I guess you could be, you would, the, the technical term would be majority plurality, but that's less. Doesn't ring off the branding tongue as no, much. Um, but, um, yeah, so so that's not like that's not super surprising. I was surprised by the black vote, I guess. But um, yeah, I don't know. You want me to like my? I, I guess my view is you know on the on the sort of question of sort of races. I think that like we have a very constrained way of understanding how to talk about um, ethnic identity, and mm-hmm. you know, it's it's really it's like in many ways, you know, the 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 Republicans, you know, they're pretty hostile to like to black people voting and like there's a lot of 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 like residual racism in the republican party and i think that that's just like true um there's a reason the charlottesville people were like associated with with trump i mean i I don't think that like we can sort of dispute that but i think there's a really elitist narrow way that uh, i think progressives and and sort of elite democrats and liberal types in our institutions talk about racial questions as well and it like it kind of buries the agency of, uh, of a lot of people who are, are black or Latino or Asian American or whatever it is. And, you know, I'm generally like more of kind of a universalist in that I think mm-hmm. that, that kind of Americans are, are pretty much want, like they kind of want universal rights and they kind of think everyone's sort of the same, although people have different cultures. But I also like part of that universalism is recognizing that there are really serious institutional um, institutional arrangements that create, that create like kind of deeply unfair racist structures, right? Like it's weird. It's like racism without blaming individual people for it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it, what the big, the big tragedy in American history and one of them is, is the failure to do land distribution after the civil war. Right. Cause, and that's why I think like 
reparations is a good idea because we have a problem of race relations in this country because there's just not a lot of money in the black community. And that's not like that with any other like ethnic group. So you, you can solve that by just like redistributing resources and, you know, people have some like PTSD around it, but like the great fortune that we have to live at this moment is that it's not the 1890s. It's not the 19 teens. People are not super racist in terms of our, our culture anymore. Like intermarriage rates are up, but at the same time, you do have this like very obvious, deeply racist institutional setup that we can fix mm -hmm. if we actually want to. And I think that that's like the, that's the dynamic in like, you know, I don't know which party is kind of going to go there, but like that I think is, is, uh, is sort of a, uh, a big part of it. The other thing I think that's, that's hard to understand is that, you know, race relations in America up until the 1980s were really oriented around, you know, this, this great culture that, you know, and set of rights and economic rights and high wages. I mean, that was a big part of American, uh, the American narrative all the way from the 1600s to the 19. 80s was like America's this land of high wages, but only for white people and like sort of white adjacent groups. And so the big struggle for um, in the civil rights movement, you know, from the 30s, I mean, go back earlier, but like what was how do you get black people to be part of this New Deal system? How do you get them the white picket fence and all the rest of the things that everybody else gets, right? And What's I think strange about the current moment is that that deal that white people had is breaking down. Mm -hmm. So the America is now a land where people are thinking about low wages, which is really different, right? Where we've offshored our productive capacity, which we've never done before, where people don't have, white people don't have economic rights anymore. And the, so the framework of that, the civil rights movement, which was built on top of the New Deal, which was built on top of these more economically egalitarian institutions for white people that that framework having broken down it's it the the and there are, there are reasons for this that we can you know go into historically but it's like the racial debate is different than it was in the, the 1960s and 70s because the deal that white people had has radically changed that's what neoliberalism did and so that changes racial dynamics but it gets very complicated and weird and it's not the same as just saying oh you know, white people are racist, which it was true. And like, I think there, you could certainly make the argument that like 30 or 40% of white people in this country are super racist, but like everybody was racist in like 1900 and, you know, 1910 and 1920, all white people were basically. Sure. So it's like, it's a very different debate. And I just think it's a hard debate to have, but like what's exciting about this moment is that, and I think the, you know, Michael Tracy points out that the election returns made everybody seem stupid. That's nice because it means that like, we don't actually know what any of this stuff really means. And we can maybe have these debates and discussions. And, and I, I am excited uh, to do that, but like, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. I don't love being like, oh, identity politics is stupid and all that. Cause then you're yeah. jumping into a priest, like sort of grooves that just make people angry and stop, you know, people stop thinking, but like, that's kind of, and I, I think that like, I don't know, our bias is always to be like, normal people agree with me, but like that yes. is kind of what I think. So mm. quick thing on this, Matt, I didn't realize you were pro reparation. So two immediate questions come to mind. Firstly, what does the Matt Stoller reparations plan look like? Because the second follow-up there and what I'm interested in is, 
if design, I, I see, I just see a world where if reparations, and I'm frankly not pro reparations, but I see a world where poorly designed reparations actually exacerbate racial tensions yep. in the sense that if you have a situation where everyone's basically sees themselves in this zero sum game over low wages in this sort of like post 1980s sort of hellscape in a bunch of different ways, I see a world where if you combine racial identity politics with racial anxiety politics with frankly, conservative um, grievance politics. You see a world where you say, why are the Democrats giving all this money to black Their people voters. who weren't yeah. slaves and we're screwed over the system too? And that would then exacerbate things. So I just, I, I just don't see a world where, because in the last part here too, is that you saw this and you know, what was the Obama phone debate? Um, and not even debate, because that wasn't a serious issue, but what was a lot of the terrible politics around you know, welfare in the 2010s? Yeah, I mean, I think so. So, okay, so I'll go into what I think of re reparations because one of the things about the reparations debate is very annoying because nobody who talks about reparations as ever says, here's how we're going to administrate it. So, like, I think somebody at one point the other, you know, a couple months ago was like, anybody who has proof that they come from a slave owning family gets reparations. And I'm like, oh, really? So you're only, only if you can document it? Like, that doesn't have biases. Like, I think the administrative questions are where the moral questions really lie and there's a reason no one's gone there. But let me ask you a question before getting into this. I think you would admit, you would, you would, there is like a big racial wealth gap, right? Yeah, of course. So, so like that's a policy problem that like you would acknowledge as a serious policy problem, right? But this is, and this is where it gets interesting though. And this is where, and Sagaris is more, not your shtick, but your sort of thing, which is that <laughs> there's a way to talk about the fact that post 2008 financial crisis, America had a disproportionate, sort of the financial crisis had a disproportionate impact on black homeowners because of a long history of mortgage policies and body, body, body. That is different than a discussion about 1865 and right. who was doing what and who was doing where. And there's a possible way that you could have the conversation about post-2008 America that is tied more to class rhetoric, that even if the vast majority of people who benefit from that policy were black, so even if 99.9% .9 of the people were black, it wouldn't provoke the same racial grievance politics that I think Sagar and I would fear, because I think anyone who covers the right yeah. would know that what we fear the most is a toxic white identity politics that sees itself under assault but Sagar, please cut in yeah no i i i, I want to pick up on something that you talked about matt which is that the collapse of the egalitarian system or the semi-egalitarian system for upper middle class whites in america from the 1960s and 1970s because of sort of neoliberalism is actually the greatest opportunity that we've ever had to fix structural inequities across races right so like the neoliberal like consolidation of the wealth like within their you know their echelons and kind of having everybody's societal fabric and economic fabric in particular break down means that by addressing that by addressing economic the economic breakdown of all citizens it would disproportionately by percentage wise probably impact black people latino people and others other minorities who are lower income, but also a segment of white America that would be most activated, I think, by a policy like reparations. I'm I'm totally in agreement with Marshall um, on this. So go ahead. Well, I just like saying, you know, the the true founding of America was 1998. <laughs> People like be like, what? This is a 1619 joke for everybody who's not as as online as we are. <laughs> The 1690 project. No, the true founding yeah. was 1776. And like, yeah. I think it was 1998. And just like <laughs> let people imagine why that is. 
and like Lewinsky, <laughs> the yeah, Lewinsky. Lewinsky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like Britney Spears' first album or the Noggin yes, Olympics. Right. That's the true date of America. <laughs> yeah. um, just are, people, people were like, they had all the, I, I tweeted that a couple of times. People had all these conspiracy theories about why I picked 1998. I was like, it really was just a random date that I thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, look, you know, there's going to be white grievance politics around some of the stuff. But I, the re I asked, so you guys agree that there's like, there's a huge, and it's white, black, right? White, black, mm -hmm. or white plus everyone else, black disparity. Well, see, this is, this is the problem, though. I mean, Matt Bruning talks about this, right? Which is that actually the racial wealth gap is largely a gap between the top 10% of black um, households and the top 10% of white households. And that if you take that away then you're roughly on parity. And then actually like wealth Sorry, gaps- do you mean but as in like white working class blacks and white and working no, class no, no, blacks- No, no, no. So within yeah. black Americans, uh, the majority of the wealth is concentrated within the top 10%, right? And the racial wealth gap is almost entirely concentrated between the top, like the amount of wealth held by the top 10% of whites and the top 10% of blacks who both disproportionately hold the vast majority of the wealth of those two racial groups in America. And there's actually a lot more parity between your median black person, at, again, I'm, I'm more of a novice here, and your median white person, especially working class people, whenever you start to break it down by income quintile. And I know this gets really technical I'm real quick. I'm just saying, like, for, in yeah. terms of, but you would acknowledge there's a gap, right? 100%. Okay, yes. so there's a gap, right? And it's like black, there's a gap between black uh, and however you want to define it, black and everyone else, right? Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, I think you could, there's definitely ways you could break it. So anyway, all, all I'm saying is there's a, and like there, there are class divides too. All I'm saying is that that's a policy problem, right? Because if you're black and, you know, you can't, often can't like fund, you know, your own police department and that has implications around police. You can't like start businesses, it's, you know, the banking systems are weak. Like it's just like causes all sorts of, it, it sort of cocoons you, even if no one were racist and you just put people into this system, like it would cocoon you into your own kind of economic strata. And that to me is a policy problem. Like, yeah. and it's not a policy problem for black people. It's a policy problem for everyone. Cause it means that like, there are a ton of businesses that I can't patronize cause they don't exist. There are a lot of neighborhoods that are crappy that could be awesome because people don't have the money to make those places nice places to live. Um, Matt, have you heard of opportunity zones? We've dealt with this. <laughs> You start, you, well, no, but the thing is, all we do is wait for Joe Biden's inauguration. It'll all be fixed. So then, yeah, can, correct. So he'll publish this podcast before that. <laughs> Otherwise, it'll be wasted. But, but Matt, in all seriousness, you know, unfair dunks on Sean Parker aside. Um, but like, I'm just trying to get to it. Like, let me make yeah. my point, right? Which mm -hmm. is, like, we all agree that there is this problem of like a white black wealth gap. And like, I actually agree. I think reparations, we just did reparations for the financial crisis. That would go a long way towards fixing, like, and it wouldn't be, it'd be sort of race neutral, even though black people were disproportionately harmed. I worked on the financial mm -hmm. crisis. It was just like, banks like stole everything from black people. And then they were like, well, I guess we've stolen all their stuff. Now let's try stealing from some white people, even though it's harder, they have more wealth to steal. That's like what happened, right? Um, it wasn't that explicit, but it was that explicit. <laughs> um, you know, but that was the gist of it. And, you know, so I think, I think the question, it's not, to me, it's not like, it's not, I don't think like reparation, I don't think reparation is a great brand, which is why I don't talk about it. Cause I don't, I don't actually think that saying, you know, um, black people are owed money for slavery is like, I don't think that's the right frame. I think it's like, 
they're actually owed money for the financial crisis, right? Like that, like we have records for that. Like they're alive, right? Like mm -hmm. that, and, so, and not just black people. Like I think that that's actually what we're talking about here. Um, but we have a problem of, of inequality in our country in general, and we also have a problem of racial inequality. And the solution that I would propose would be something like Thomas Paine's solution, which is, or baby bonds, which you see these days, which is just like, when you hit 21 or 18, like, first of all, you got to fix a lot of social infrastructure so everybody gets good education and whatnot. But like when you hit 18 or when you hit 21, you should get a chunk of money and you can use that money to start a business, buy a piece of land, whatever it is that you want to do with it. And like, I think everybody should get sort of a starter pack for life. And I, you know, if you're rich, you get it too, but it won't be worth very much to you because you already have money. And if you are, mm. if you are poor, that is a big deal that allows you to do something that you wouldn't ordinarily be able to do. And I think that that would have a transformational effect. I think it should go to everyone. I think it would have like a massive impact on our society. I also think we need to get, you know, have get everybody have access to markets and access to a whole bunch of social systems. But basically like the reason that I, and I, I say, I, I thought a lot about, I didn't like reparations at first because I thought, oh, this is a white grievance politics and all this other stuff. I agree with you guys on that. But then I was like, well, it is, you know, when I, when I started looking into, um, uh, why it is that there, that black um, media entrepreneurs couldn't get carriage on Comcast. Like these are people like Magic Johnson or, or Diddy, mm -hmm. like people with old money, right? And they, they still can't get access to credit, right? The same kinds of credit that white, you know, this, the black super rich are not a huge policy problem, but it is true that there is like, that like, it doesn't matter how rich you are. You face different problems if you're, if you're black. But the basic problem that's screwing up black politics is there's no money in the black community. And so all the funding of black politics essentially becomes, because you had this really interesting split when Comcast, you know, with the Comcast-NBC merger, where Comcast promised, got the CB, the Congressional Black Caucus on their side, because they were promising, um, we'll do all these things for black people that, you know, white people already get, like your own TV channels, your own like media ownership and, and whatnot. And they didn't deliver on any of it. But, and it was actually like, you know, but, but that, that is, you know, they went back on all of their promises and Diddy got upset and all these different um, black and Latino people who are owning media. So they got upset. And it's like the, the fundamental problem there is the corruption of, of politics because the black politicians are dependent on basically white controlled monopolies. And, you know, you saw this with, um, I think, 50 Cent talking about his show. I forget what the show is called. But it's like a power, power. Yeah, yeah power. They're, they're like the Stars Network was getting kicked off of Comcast. And he so he was like, you know, putting on his Instagram, David Cohen, the CEO of Comcast sucks. And it was like sort of a rap battle, except he was dunking on a billionaire CEO who owns a, a cable company. And it's like in that and I looked into like the history. This is a piece for the American Prospect that came out just when the pandemic was starting, which is why no one read it. But like, <laughs> it, you know, if you look at the, the history of black business, and I think we're a country of business, and, you know, I think we have to look at the lack of money in the black community as a unique policy problem that has unique policy consequences. And I'm not arguing about marketing. Like, I think you would have a big problem if you were to just do like a, a reparations type of argument, but I do think that we have to recognize that that is a that that is a particular policy problem with very serious consequences that you cannot address until you acknowledge and 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 address it. And I agree with you yeah. that I think neoliberalism does open the opportunity to kind of create a blank canvas and redraw 
um, a lot of a lot of our, our sort of wealth systems in our in our culture. I also agree with Matt Brunick. Like I think that the gap between the top ten percent and the bottom ninety percent is really really significant. But um, so that's that's kind of where I, sure. I come in. And I just I would just market these things differently. And I think that a lot of the marketing choices really come out of the fact that like you know the there's a the, the sort of lifestyle brand progressivism versus doing you know like versus having a real political agenda that you're trying to achieve. And I, I think there are some distinctions there. Like I think the baby bonds thing is moving forward. You know, Trump might have, if he had won a second term, he might've gone for that. So like, there are some arguments that are coming out of the progressive space that are really actually coherent around some of this stuff, but that's, that's mm. how I would approach it. It's really interesting. The last things I think I want to get with you, Matt, is what do you want out of a Joe Biden presidency? Like what, what are realistically, do you think you could best get, you know, don't, don't project all your wants and your dreams and how do you think that that's going to go i mean you can't you know it's as fun as it's been to uh to shit post about trump and, and and all the dunks for the last four years now with biden in office what would you like to see yeah um well i mean i think i think a lot of it depends on mitch mcconnell i mean that's really where you're the problem that you know he's yes, really you're I agree with you um and i i think it's a you know the the bad scenario is that it's a biden mcconnell presidency which will then force, I think, the right and left to work together more. Because um, right now we don't really work together. But mm. um, a, a better scenario would be some sort of, uh, I think, policy. I want Biden to do three, three things. Like one, break up corporate monopolies so they stop stealing our wages and ruining our communities. Right? That, that also healthcare stuff in there. But like driving up costs, stealing wages. I think that monopolies are a massive problem, corporate monopolies. So break them up, take those pieces, break them up more, regulate those component pieces. And that will solve a ton of problems upstream. I would like him to um, really take on China. I think it's really important. I think what Trump did in changing that conversation was enormously helpful, but I don't actually think that Trump's policies achieved what Trump wanted to achieve. I would like Biden to actually achieve that stuff. Um, these are dreams, by the way. I'm not saying it's gonna happen. It's just, and then the mm -hmm. third thing is I'd like our troops out of the Middle East. Um, I think those those three things would be would be uh, I think would would set up the U.S. for a very a very different and, and much better outcome. So you know, and I think that the Republicans have a big role to play in um, whether any of those things happen. And that's like you know that's this kind of an you know progressives have some role to play, but that's an open question, right? I mean, if the Republicans just decide we're going to stop Biden from doing anything then it's just this becomes a country that is, we don't have four years, but this becomes a country ruled by big tech in China, right? And so, and I know the incentives for the Republicans is to block Biden at all costs, but, you know, I think that's a, that would be a bad thing for the country. And I don't have an yeah, answer yeah. for what to do. And I don't know yeah. if Biden's gonna do any of this stuff either. But I do think like, that like, people misunderstand Biden because they don't acknowledge just how bad a President Obama was. So they can't understand that Biden is going to be much better, not because Biden is good, but because Obama was just that bad. Hmm. Right? And I just mean in terms of policy, not in terms of the person. I mean, I think everybody can look at him and say, oh, he's a decent man with a wonderful family and whatnot. But like in terms of policy, like consolidation of, you know, everything from airlines to Facebook and Google, which were relatively minor companies at the beginning of the Obama administration and world straddling monopolists by the end, you know, a good example was like approving the Live Nation Ticketmaster merger. Like, 
everybody hated Live Nation and everybody hated Ticketmaster. And then they merged under Obama. And it's like Ari Emanuel, who was Rahm Emanuel's brother, was on the board. And it's like, they didn't have to let that happen, but they did. And it's like, there were Live Nation Ticketmasters all over the administration, but no one was paying attention until like Trump wins. Um, but that's like what happened in our economy, like Live Nation Ticketmaster everywhere. It's Comcast everywhere. So I, I just think that like, really understanding like there's a there's a trauma within the democratic establishment that we will repeat the first term of the obama administration there's a real trauma there people are really afraid of it and not just among progressives but um kind of among the establishment they they know something was wrong they don't quite know what um and and i think that that's a real thing that's going to have kind of unpredictable consequences um so last question here then which is how much agency does a Joe Biden have? Because that's why it's good that you're bringing up the Ticketmaster Live Nation thing, because that was something internal, didn't seem to me to have anything to do with Mitch McConnell, because what a progressive or any or someone even center left would think is, well, what Mitch McConnell said, he was going to have Obama fail. So everything that happened over the years and the Tea Party just meant that he was always doomed. How much agency does Joe Biden have in a Senate that's likely to be controlled by Mitch McConnell? So what are the, what, here's a better way of putting my question. What do you think are the li Live Nation ticket masters that Joe Biden is going to have agency over over the next four years? It, you know, a lot of it depends. I think it, Biden will have a lot of, of power, but um, a lot of it depends on whether the Republicans are willing to confirm any of his cabinet. And I, I think that the Republicans in general are really willing to wield power in a way that Democrats are not. So is Mitch McConnell going to say, uh, I don't want to approve any of, you know, your FTC nominees and I want to keep the FTC at 2-2 so the FTC can't effectually, effectively function? He can do that if he wants to. Um, is Josh Hawley going to break from McConnell and say, no, we need an FTC to go after Facebook and Google? Like, that's an open question. It's not a question that Biden can answer. And I think that's mm -hmm. true kind of across, across the administration. It's just sort of like McConnell has a lot of say over whether Biden gets to, you know, not even gets to govern in the sense of like do a progressive administration, but just be the president, like really actually do things. And more say, I think, than, than, um, uh, than he had over Obama, just because Obama had those first two years. And the, the Republicans just have a different posture vis-a-vis -vis the Democrat in that they just want to wield power and shape society and they don't care who, you know, they just, whatever levers they have, they're gonna use those levers to their maximum effect. And the, the Democrats, you know, just sort of don't seem to do that the same way. And um, so I think that that's, you know, I guess Biden had a bunch of creative people around him. He could really do some, you know, go after, uh, you know, attack that structure. But it's also possible that McConnell will be like, well, if you wanna do anything, anything you need, I'll, I'll, I'm willing to work with you on it as long as, you know, we get a giant corporate tax cut out of the deal. So it's like, it might be that McConnell just is like, all right, we want an infrastructure, great. Public-private partnerships, and we're going to sell off the national parks, and that's the cost, right? <laughs> it could be that, like, that, that's what he just, he demands, you know, a, a, a tithe on everything to give to mm -hmm. his, you know, to give to Stephen Schwartzman or whatever. So that's, like, that's kind of the, the, you know, the open question here. And I don't have an answer, but the president is really powerful. So like, let's not, you know, I don't want to overlook That's right. it. So that's important. All right, Matt, this has been an excellent discussion. Really appreciate you joining us, man. Thank you. Hey, thanks a lot. Thanks, Matt. Bye. Bye. Bye.
Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Be sure to drop us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or send us an email with a question at realignmentpod at gmail.com. Huge thank you to Lincoln Network for hosting and sponsoring our work. We will see you all next week.